Welcome to the Haber Show. The playoffs have started. They're upsets galore. Draft lotteries here. So this week's guest is perfect to discuss all that. It's ESPN's Amin El Hassan. You can catch him on The Jump, SiriusXM NBA Radio, and the Count the Dings podcast network. He comes on the show to talk about the Lakers, the Bucks, and Clippers all getting punched in the mouth in the first round. And we discuss which team is actually the title favorite, and it's not any of those three. Amin tells me how the draft process really works, um, and we go over some classic stories about Michael Beasley and Kwame Brown. And finally, we'll talk about the Miami Heat and the hardest two-man game to guard in the NBA. So, uh, great stuff from Amin, as always. Let's get to the conversation. Without further ado, Amin L. Hassett. All right, so I got the game on here. Um, It's Pacers Heat. And uh, after what we've seen so far, Amin, in the bubble, kind of feel like it's going to be one of these Miami Heat team that win it all. That wins it all? Yes, wins it all. I don't know about win it all. I don't know. I think I definitely think if they see Milwaukee, they're going to beat Milwaukee. Like I, I am getting firmly entrenched into that. Honestly, when the bubble started, there was something in me that said, you know, who's going to win this whole thing. And it's this name. And then as time has gone by, it's gone from ridiculous to, of course, they're going to win. It. Toronto. And it's Toronto. It's Toronto. Yeah. It, like it's so it's so <laughs> apparent. Because everyone else is just not on the same page. And they're over here. I mean, you could tell the offense in the bubble has been tremendous, right? Nobody can guard anybody. Mm -hmm. Except for Toronto, apparently. Because their defense is amazing. Amazing. And and the more I think about it, the more I think about, like, you you know, they they pretty much prepared for this all, right? All year long, the idea that to be able to play any defense at any time and, and switch it up not just from game to game to game, but from quarter to quarter, from position to possession. Like, if anyone was equipped to be able to pick up things on the fly after a four-month layoff, it's the Toronto Raptors. Totally agree. Their defense has been great, and um, not just here against the Nets. I mean, that's a that's the Nets, right? <laughs> Did you see Joe Harris ever, went home? Yeah, yeah, he's he not coming back. <laughs> he's done. He's out. Yeah. Um, so the Toronto Raptors are interesting because they've been switching up their defenses all season long. They've already prepared with like crazy depth. Norman Powell went off the other night, but I think of all things, maybe the advantage, the home court advantage that is gone of all things that they've got an edge on. It's the fact that they were practicing for weeks in Florida before people oh, came. Oh, I forgot about that. That they got to Florida first. Yep. They got to Florida first and they were having like, Easy practices at uh at Dunk Dunk U, whatever it was called. Yeah. Um Yeah, Florida Gulf Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dunk City. Is it still is it still Dunk U? Like I feel like he didn't Enfield like leave and yeah. that was it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's at U- is he at UCLA or USC? USC. Yeah. USC, yeah. So they got to go down like an extra week or extra two weeks. I, th- I think it was like an extra week and just practice by themselves in their own little bubble in uh in naples and they just they got everything right um and they don't have like an eric bledsoe um someone who or or russell westbrook who came into the bubble a little bit later or were coming back from uh right from a coronavirus thing so there's just so many things that are pointed to the toronto raptors and then there's the i'm looking at the odds the vegas odds let's see i have 
I'm trying to figure out if this is, yeah, this is updated. I feel like Vegasinsider.com. I don't know if this is the most uh, up to date one, but they still have the Raptors at plus nine fifty, the Lakers at plus five hundred, Bucks at plus two sixty, and Clippers at plus two sixty. So if I'm like, if I'm betting my my kid's life on it, which I shouldn't do, like Jesus. betting my kid's life on an NBA team in the bubble, not a good idea. But if I'm doing it. I don't feel good about the Clippers, Bucks, or Lakers right now, and Toronto makes a lot of sense. Oh man, uh, look, Bucks, I don't feel good about because I never felt good. I didn't feel good about them before. You I were a hater like, on them before, before even last year. You, you were, yeah. you were out on, off that Bucks train last year before like the playoffs even started. No, it's it started uh, in the semifinals. To be, I know exactly when it's. Rarely do I get an opinion that I know the exact date. And for me, it was game one of the Eastern Conference semifinals. I was at that game. The Boston Celtics won that game. And I said, and they hit a zillion threes because the Celtics just basically ran high pick and roll with Kyrie and, uh, and Al Horford. Horford would, would, would pop, actually, catch, and then, like, wait a beat, and then just throw someone who's wide open in the corner, whether it was Tatum or Brown or Marcus Smart or whoever. And they just annihilated Milwaukee. And I said... Wow, it's, I remember I was talking to somebody from Milwaukee at you know at the arena. It's a tough game, you know. It'd be interesting to see what adjustments Bud makes. And the guy says, "Oh, he's not making any adjustments." I said, "Come again?" He's like, "Yeah, Bud doesn't make adjustments. He his thing is if we're doing what we're supposed to do, it doesn't matter what they're doing." And I'm like, "Oh, good luck with that." And, and <laughs> it wasn't about the Celtics at that moment because I knew Kyrie is a kind of guy who like you tell him, "Hey, all you got to do is sit still and everything will go all right." He's like, "Okay." It's like my kids. Like he's like, "Okay, okay," and they're like, "I could I go." See what's in the fridge like no just sit still like so i knew that would self-destruct but i knew at some point they would play someone whether it was uh at that time obviously whether it was philly or, or toronto or or the warriors they were gonna play someone who was going to be able to do swing swing and find that open three every single time and would not be shy about it would not stop doing it and sure enough the next series they ran into in toronto and so i was expecting things to change this year watching the bucks look you lost you lost four straight games pretty much after leading two and a half games. You lost you, – you just blew everything. So clearly you know what's wrong, that the, the strategy that you took while incredibly successful in a regular season setting just ain't going to work in the playoffs where people are game planning for it, where they know you're getting aggressive, where they know you're trapping, where they know that you don't care about giving up threes as long as you protect the rim. We know it now, so you got to figure out something different. Right. Much like we know that you're – It's like a seasonal just, adjustment rather than a game-to-game -game adjustment. Exactly right, and the same thing with the with the offense. Like that, Kawhi is. I mean, uh, Giannis is going to do this, and if you defend him this way, game over, right? And so I said, okay, let's see how they. And they didn't do anything different. They did the same. Like they what they did this year is exactly the same as last year, albeit to a higher level, right? It, they worked on their strengths, in other words, which is cool, and it's great for winning seventy games, perhaps in a regular season. Had we had not had a shutdown. But it doesn't answer what's happening to them in the playoffs. And I even heard people say, oh, maybe they, they have, but they're just not unveiling it until they get to the playoffs. Well, they lost game one doing it the same way. And, and again, Orlando's not going to beat them because Orlando doesn't have the, the, the three-point firepower on a consistent basis to do that again. But the, the idea is that it gets harder from here, that you're going to probably have to face Miami in the next round. And they're the best in the league at moving the ball and shooting threes mm -hmm. at this point. And if you get past them, you're probably going to have to play either Toronto or Boston. And they're really, really good at it. And so 
my confidence that Milwaukee will come out of the East is is at near zero. So let me push back on that for a little bit because you know what team actually gives up more three pointers than the Bucks? The Toronto Raptors. Uh, they oh they give up a lot of three pointers. A ton of three pointers. Forty four percent of the opposing shots are three pointers for Toronto this season. Miami Heat are forty three percent. Milwaukee Bucks are forty two percent. Opponent shots are coming from beyond the arc. Now, the other thing that the Raptors do is they give up the corner three a lot. They give up the highest percentage of corner threes in the NBA. You love the Toronto Raptors, but they actually give up a ton of threes as well. I mean, we know that they can win championships playing that kind of defense. They did it last season. And they're the number two defense in the NBA. We know it's successful in the regular season. I guess the difference is Nick Nurse is willing to, and able to switch up the defenses, whereas right. Coach Bud is just a little bit more stubborn. And that's and that's what we're coming back down to. It's not that they're not good. The Bucks aren't good. It's that they have a philosophical belief that we don't adjust. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point that's hubris, right? That's that's a little. That's not giving your opponents enough enough credit. And, and that's why, you know, one of the reasons why I always say that Pop is the, the best coach of all time, the greatest coach of all time. It's not the, the wins and the rings. Obviously, that helps. But the reality is when you are successful at doing something, it is a lot harder to be convinced that you need to change than when you're unsuccessful. You suck. It's easy for someone to say, you suck. You need to do it this way. Yeah, I do suck. Let me try it this way. But if I have accolades and wins and stuff like that, why the hell am I ever going to switch? Do I, look at my resume. I don't need to switch anything. I'm awesome. But you got like that, like it's a hard adjustment to make. It's, it's a very – I'm not – this is not even a, like a, a specific criticism of Bud. I think most coaches, if you look at it, they coach a certain way. Whether they make adjustments here or there or not in the, in the context of a playoff, they have a coaching style. Mike D'Antoni has a coaching style. Pat Riley has a coaching style, right? Greg Popovich – and probably Larry Brown are the only two guys that I know who are like, what's my roster? All right, we're going to do this, this kind of offense. What, oh, we had a roster? Too? All right, we're going to change That takes offense. a certain right. humility, doesn't it? It's like, Absolutely. I'm, it's, it's I am too- not the reason why we win. It's the players, and then I, I rework the system to work around my players. It's an adaptive Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, to me, like people say Phil, Jack- Phil Jackson literally went hell or high water with the triangle, which is cool. Up until it didn't work, right? And then I was like, okay. But Pop managed to keep evolving with the time. Pop says, I don't like the three-pointer, right? He's like, I don't like the three-pointer. I think it's gimmicky. But in 2014, he wasn't sitting there telling Gary Neal to take a dribble in and and shoot that mid-range. He wasn't having Danny Green spot up them 18 feet. He played the game the way it was presented to him. Or coach the game, I should the way it was presented to him. Were they emphasizing the corner three when you were with the Suns, or was that? Yep. Yes, yeah. but it was it wasn't a math thing. It wasn't a math. That thing. was a spacing thing, just trying to spacing. clear out. Yeah, spacing thing, right? It, it was trying to clear out, trying to make the, trying to convince that defender to not leave the corner, right? Because the idea is that it's a close shot, and we got shooters. You want to go ahead and help on this Amari roll or the Steve Nash drive? Go ahead and do it. You're giving up a layup. Mm-hmm. You're giving up a, a, an easy jumper over here. So we did it enough so that that defender was like, "Look, that's just not my help," right? And stays hugged up on that corner. And once that happens, now we've got this entire side to operate. Now we're having fun, mm-hmm. right? 
the Raptors right now, probably you're looking at a team that is already has the championship pedigree. They already know that their system works. They have the confidence. They have the role players who are able to step up, who have been down the stretch. OG Ananobi has been great defensively. He's been much better this year now that he's healthy. Fred Van Vliet still has stones. Kyle Lauer, we already know that. Uh, Siakam, I mean... What I saw from the Lakers in game one was a real test to me because I know they didn't, they missed a whole bunch of open shots, but really I think what was amazing to see is how, when they're going, they had the third worst offense in the bubble. The Los Angeles Lakers had the third worst offense in the bubble. Now you can say, Hey, they didn't have anything to play for. They had everything locked up. LeBron James and Anthony Davis were cruising. Like we heard all of that ad nauseum about the Lakers. And then they lay an egg against what was just about the worst defense, turnstile defense in the NBA in the bubble was the Portland Trailblazers. Now, they beefed up a little bit with Whiteside and and Nurk. They certainly came to play. But I'm sitting here and wondering if people are, I guess, overcompensating with LeBron James. We're we're not going to doubt LeBron James anymore, and he's going to flip the switch, and he's going to like blow our minds again in this postseason. But I'm skeptical. Like, I thought they were coming into the bubble, Orlando bubble. I thought they were going to be the best team or the best team by far. I thought they were going to come in and just blow the doors off of guys. And they haven't done that at all. And I know LeBron James has has missed a game with the groin issue, and he still doesn't look right to me. He got a huge box score numbers in the triple-double stats. But still, I don't think LeBron is um, where he needs to be. And before, I might say, look, he's going to get back into it. It's going to be fine. But... Now people are making excuses for him and saying, uh, you know, it's <laughs> go ahead and say, it. what are they saying? Uh, what's the, what's the latest excuse? Why LeBron doesn't look like himself. Um, I did see Joe Varden write a story. I didn't read it. I just saw the headline it was something about the fans and shouts to my man, Joe, who is, uh, who is on the NBC news broadcast with me a couple months ago for Kobe. But I'm sitting here like, Every every NBA star doesn't have fans in the building. So why is this more so for LeBron? That doesn't make sense to me. Like LeBron has always LeBron has always had a higher um a higher calling in terms of like I'm I want to be the greatest of all time. I want to be the best. Chasing ghosts. He's chasing ghosts. He's not chasing like, fans. He's ch- he's yeah. chasing he's ch- chasing MJ, I, right? I like Joe. I like Joe a lot. I think he's a great reporter and a great writer. But I rolled my eyes so hard at that that tweet because it's just like there's at some point, even if LeBron and Maverick and Rich and Gloria and Savannah all said that to you, like off the record, don't tell anyone this thing. Like this is some top secret stuff. You can't write that, man, because it sounds so ridiculous. What is he, Jesus? He's dying on a cross for you, and you're throwing stones at him. Like, come on, man. Like, like, and especially, you know, if this was 28-year-old LeBron, I think I'd be willing to, to believe it, right? The problem is he's 37 and just had a four-month layoff. Could there be a more logical explanation like, oops? Especially when he himself said it before, right when the shutdown happened. He said, well, I've never had this much this much time go by where I wasn't playing basketball at this point in the calendar. My body is calibrated for 17 years. Right now, March and April is when we're ramping up. And now I'm telling my body, no, we're actually doing the opposite. We're mm. shutting everything down. Like he's telling you, like, this physically, this isn't 
normal for me. Why you got to reach all the way over there talk about the fans not being there? Some wholly unquantifiable BS, really. So Varden writes, um, because I don't feel it's very fair to just base off something off a tweet. Um, but he said he tweeted it like we're not going off the headline. We're going off his tweet. Those are his words. For he, his, he wrote he, he wrote he wrote this. column. I know you're going to go into the column and that's fine. But I just want to say this. Even if we're off base and the column is completely different. Yes, Joe, you're going to get held accountable for the clickbait because you don't write your headlines. Spoiler alert. Writers don't write their headlines. Yeah, I don't. An editor writes it, but they write their tweets. And, and what they write on their tweet is representative of what they think is the takeaway or one of the takeaways from their article. So even if the article is nuanced and talks about all the science and all this other stuff, he chose that the part I'm going to highlight is that LeBron did it for the fans. And that is just wholly ridiculous. And if it's just clickbait, then he needs to be ridiculed for that too. But go ahead. Give me some kind. He said um, – he's quoting LeBron says, there's nothing to do here besides play basketball. And Varden writes, come playoff time, LeBron does a sp- few specific things. He normally shuts down his social media and tries to stay out of his phone, which he says he won't do now because his family is in Los Angeles and he needs to stay connected. He reads books to pass the time, but things are already so quiet inside the bubble. Perhaps the peace and s- silence of curling up with a Colio uh, novel will drive him to madness. For weeks, he's been talking about there are no fans here and how that's hard for him. To cope, he looks more toward the video board into the various league officials in the seats, but even over to the media tables, hoping to gauge someone's gaze. But this time, more than any previous playoff run, he'll have to unleash his best self for his and his teammates' benefit and not the adoring, paying customers. He won't get the pleasure and privilege of a playoff game at Staples Center. And he said, LeBron said on Monday, this would be his, quote, toughest playoff run ever because of the circumstances. All right, so LeBron... So so that context clears it up, I guess. (laughs) No, no. I mean, it, the the point is, is that LeBron is not getting motivation from himself. He needs motivation from fans, which doesn't really jive with what we know about LeBron, right? Like, what makes LeBron tick is he's always been a um, a guy who's a basketball savant and is a student of the game. And the idea of being in the bubble where everything is about the games wouldn't LeBron thrive in that environment? Is like all well, I, I mean, need to I do think- is focus on on basketball. I think there is an. If you want to see this, this is why I said Joe went so far with it, because if you want to tell me LeBron's a family man, and not being around his family really, really hurts, like it's it it, it robs him of like kind of a lot of it's it's energy and how he balances himself. I'm willing to listen to that one because not everybody in the bubble is a family man. Yeah. Some of them don't have families. Some of them have families and ain't even rocking with their families like that. Just being just being blunt with it. So, so for some people, not having your family around is a detriment, right? And and for some, it's 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 a positive. It's like, oh, I get to focus. I don't have to deal with so-and-so yakking in my ear or whatever, right? Or kids bothering me about, like, distance learning like my kids are right now. Um, <laughs> so that's that's believable. But you can't say it's because of the fans. This is a guy who left Cleveland, right? on TV. <laughs> like he's not, right. he's not, he's not out there being like, I'm, I'm everything I do is for the adoration of my fans. He's not leaving Cleveland. If that was the case. Right. Like uh, <laughs> what do you want? So, so Frank Vogel should like also have an iPad, by the way, this is what they're calling you. Wash King on Twitter. Like what? Let me go out there and play real basketball. Like, come on, man. If, if your mission is to be the greatest player that's ever played and you know, you can't do the unbeaten, you can't do the six and oh, and you can't do the 11 and 13. Like, the, you got to do everything else then, right? Mm-hmm. You got to clean up in every other category. Fan love ain't one of them. 
it's just not one of them. And if it is, if it truly is, letting it known that fan love is one of them is definitely not going to get it done for you. Because that's the other part. Let's just assume that he's right. And LeBron, this is what's bothering LeBron. You can't have that out there? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Like my, another secret. thing, when, when the Lakers offense, like, do you know how many assists they had outside of LeBron in that game? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say three. Yeah, it was like six. It was six assists as a team, non-LeBron. And I'm not saying that Rajon Rondo is the answer here. Like, I, I've been out on Rajon Rondo the last couple of years, especially on the, on the Lakers. But the idea of everything runs through LeBron and he's not right, you need someone else to pick up the slack, whether it's Anthony Davis, whether it's well, Caruso. See, there you go. Okay, so now we're talking. Because off of game one, LeBron wasn't 2015 finals LeBron. But he played well enough for them to win that game. Yeah. We want to start taking names and making a list of the people who did not meet expectations. To me, it starts with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is, has done this throughout the bubble. And I would say at various points during the season, he's done this. Where when put in a position to be depended on and relied on, he has a tendency to disappear. Not wholly unlike Chris Middleton. The difference is no one's calling Chris Middleton an MVP candidate. Right. Right. Like Chris Middleton is an all-star. He's absolutely an all-star. He's an all-NBA. He's an overachiever rather than number one overall pick, right? Exactly, right? This is a second-round pick guy who worked his way up to this. And even at this point, the highest point of his career, we still understand. Eh, buddy, like, you know, it's it's really Giannis. In Anthony Davis's case, like, nah, man, like, you're supposed to be the franchise player. LeBron ain't going to play forever, right? No no one's looking at Chris Middleton as the secession plan for, for Giannis. But Anthony Davis is that. Mm-hmm. And so he, like, to me, his disappearance. I thought uh, Kenny Smith did an amazing job of outlining this in the game the other day at halftime. Anthony Davis gets the ball. He's being guarded one-on-one by Wenyan Gabriel. Wenyan Gabriel is a rookie. Wenyan Gabriel is playing in his first playoff game, and he's starting it. He is starting his first playoff game ever. He is as wide-eyed and bushy-tailed as you can get. How wide-eyed, you might ask. At one point, he gets elbowed in the nose by LeBron and starts gushing blood, and the mics pick him up saying, whoa, LeBron just elbowed me in the nose, dude. Like, that's how, like, yes. brand new to this shit he is. Yeah. And so Anthony Davis catches a ball, and what does he do? He holds and he waits, mm-hmm. and he sees. And so the double comes, and he swings out, and that's it. That's the end of the possession for Anthony Davis. Bro, that's got to be raw meat right there. That's got to be, we eating. Mm-hmm. They got a rookie on me. I, t- I told you the story, right? The Larry Bird story. Uh, 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 no, I don't know. Tell C- it. Celtics, Celtics are playing the Pistons. And Dennis Rodman is guarding Larry Bird. Like Dennis Rodman, this is Dennis Rodman, one of the greatest defensive players of all time. And at that time, I believe either the year he won Depoy or around that time. Yep. Clearly an elite level defender. He is hugged up on Bird. Like. Complete deny. I don't care what happens. Behind. I'm not, I'm in zero help mode. I am. My whole thing is to guard Larry Bird, one of the greatest defenders of all time. At the peak of his defensive ability, is all over Larry Bird. And you know what Larry Bird said? He's yelling at his teammates. Guys, guys, I'm wide open. I can't believe this. And he turns and he looks at Chuck Daly. Like, Chuck, you only got four. You guys are gonna play four on five. I'm wide open. Oh my God, passing the ball. And Dennis Rodman is like, "What the f is going on?" And they'd get the ball to Bird, and he would 
absolutely J him and then run back up court. How, what the, how, how you guys keep helping off of me? I can't believe it. They're leaving me wide open. Have oh they not heard? That is the mentality of someone who's like, oh, I've got raw meat in front of me and we cook in the night. Anthony Davis did not come with that attitude during game one. And you could say, we well, took 24 shots. That's aggressive, right? Yes and no. I mean, it's better than him taking seven shots like he did against the uh, the Raptors earlier in the bubble. But it's still not where it needs to be. He's got to force the issue on, on some level because it can't be all LeBron. But, Tom, this brings me back to a question I asked a year ago, and I've been pondering for a while. Is LeBron the toughest drug to quit? For, for us as analysts or you're t- saying Ooh, as a teammate? As a teammate, right? Like, mm. I got LeBron. My team is awesome. He makes me good. He makes me a better defensive player. He makes me smarter. He makes me awesome. You know what? I feel pretty good. I don't need to take this LeBron anymore. Take LeBron out. Oh, my God. The world is a scary place. Ah, like, if it's not, if I'm not on the LeBron, I don't have any of that basketball superpower. Does that make LeBron the toughest drug to quit? Like, meaning that once you're on it, you're addicted. There's no such thing as, well, LeBron's hurt. We'll run this other offense to Anthony Davis, and we'll still be a very good team. Not as great a team as when LeBron's out there, but still good enough. No, when LeBron's not out there, they are not a playoff team. I mean that in every sense. From a number standpoint, if you look at their net rating, it is that of a team that is under 500. From a, like, just looking at them, do you think this team would make the playoffs if he wasn't out there? And from every standpoint, they are a non-playoff team if he doesn't play. And that's with Anthony Davis, purportedly one of the top five players in the league. So So Anthony Davis took six shots at the rim area out of his 24. And then the rest were away from the basket. Or at least, you know, by the foul line extended. So he he shot eight of 24 in game game one. Five of those were three-pointers. All of them missed at the top of the key. No corner three-pointers. And then he had 19 twos. He made eight of them, five of six at the rim. And then outside of three feet, he was three for 13. I mean, that, that's not the hallmark of someone who is being aggressive, who's being adequately aggressive, right? And especially, again, considering who's guarding him. Yeah. Because even if it's a Son White side that was on him, man, that's food for, that should be food for Anthony Davis. One pump fake and top. he is gone in oh my the first God. row. He's like gone. the easiest guy to dupe. So what about the Clippers though? So the Clippers lose last night to the to the Mavericks. Um, I wrote about the Mavericks today. Uh, historically good offense, 115.9 points per possession in the regular season. Highest regu- regular season offensive rating in NBA history. Now this is like the turbo NBA where everyone's a little bit higher than usual. But in crunch time, the Mavericks shrivel up and they're terrible in crunch time, usually. Um, I went inside the numbers, looked at whether it's Doncic, whether it's Porzingis, and it doesn't seem to be any indication that like Doncic is just ball hogging, ball hogging, ball hogging too much and just everyone standing around. There's a little bit of that, but also they're just not hitting shots. Like Luka Doncic is 7 for 41 from downtown in crunch time this year. Uh, Porzingis is, is even worse. It's something like three out of 22 from deep. They're not hitting shots. Regardless, the Clippers just got killed by the bench units. Trey Burke last night. And even with Kawhi and Paul George out there, they, they weren't, they weren't good. And so now we have the Lakers who got punched in the face in game one. 
We got the Clippers who were knotted up at, at one apiece against the Mavericks. And then you have the Milwaukee Bucks who just lost to the Orlando Magic. So which of those three teams are you most worried about in their championship viability and least worried about? Based off of their first round? Um, just just in general. Like we're, from what we've seen. Well, in general, I would say Milwaukee. Milwaukee's answer to both those questions. Because most Milwaukee, because I just don't feel like once they get past Orlando, I don't think the road goes much longer for them because better teams will exploit it. But in terms of just the first round, I'd say Milwaukee's the least. I'm concerned about because they're playing the, the worst opponent. They're playing of all the three. They can those get away teams, with this, yeah. Like the, the, of the three teams, like the Blazers, the Mavericks, and the Magic. Which one of these do you think there's no chance in hell they'll have a, a performance like that again? Oh, it's the Magic for sure. It's the Magic, right? So it's like on that level, it's like well, the Bucks, no matter how flawed they are, they're fine, right? The Clippers, man, there's just something. There's a disconnect there. You know how hey, we hey, like we to just, talk. Are we over? Are we overcompensate, or are we just over exaggerating the idea that Kawhi isn't this like rah 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 guy, and so they take on his personality where they're just not—they don't look like they're having fun out there. Well, it's not—it's not even that. It's—I I look at the Clippers and I think of the old adage of like the the sum being greater than the the like the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. And I don't get that vibe from the Clippers. I feel like the Clippers are exactly the sum of their parts. <laughs> there, there's no like, greater than. They're, they're two plus two plus two plus two, right? Yeah. It's, they are. It's, they are five fingers. They are not a fist. Yes. Yes. Right. And and I, one of the things I'm really interested to look into is the evolution of Kawhi Leonard's offense, because one of the things I used to love about him was efficiency of motion. Right. He didn't waste a whole lot of. Shit. He went right into, if you got to go by you, go right by you. And it was there. And I'm watching these Clipper games, and I'm like, he's doing a lot of dribbling, dude. A lot of and he's in the shot. stuff. Yeah. He's in the shot. Don't get me wrong. But he's doing a lot of cross, cross, tween, cross, behind the back, swing. That, like, he's doing a lot of. There's a lot of more you know, fat on the bone than he used to. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's not super tight. It's not just very. It used to be very. A means to an end, but now he's just kind of like rip and go. Yeah, yeah. Look at what he, I can look at what I can do with a basketball. There's yes. a, a lot of that. Um, now, flip side is he's a much better passer than he was in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't think passing was on the radar for him, and now he's a lot better at that. But there's an element of that style of play, of the fat on the bone, to use your term, that I think is deflating from a team offensive standpoint. And you can't use the excuse that they that they don't have a lot of chemistry yet. I mean, we're we're sixty games into this thing. Well, they can because they 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 haven't had their the roster hasn't been healthy. But part of that is by design, dude. Sure, but that's, I mean, just because there's an accurate reason why it happened doesn't mean it's not happening, right? And yeah. and that's the trade off, I guess. The trade off of, you know, part of it was load management, but part of it is a legitimate injury. There were guys who were hurt, right? Paul George started this year hurt, um, so. I think I think there's there's a little bit of both going on there. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. The guest this week on the Talking Blazers podcast is the one, the only Kevin Love. Do you think they will upset the Lakers in the first round? I mean, listen, I think they they have great personnel in order to I mean rough them up is one thing but they have to bank on the other guys stepping up and Melo and all those guys that you had mentioned before stepping up so he can have those three days rest because a healthy CJ with that team against the Lakers gives them the best shot and I think they I mean they really have a chance to steal some games and 
uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how it goes. Now, back to the conversation. Let's switch gears here and talk about the draft lottery tonight. So uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Draft lottery is tonight. It looks like, uh, I don't know, um, this might not be a particularly strong draft. And I wrote a story last year that the, the correlation of best players in the draft at the top of the draft seems to be getting worse. It seems to be like, statistically speaking, it seems like more of a crapshoot than ever over the last five years. It's been a pretty big crapshoot. We can even talk about Anthony Bennett going number one overall, or just like the best players. Like the reason why I did this was because the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship without a single lottery pick on the team. Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Saul, Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, like all these guys weren't blue trip, blue chip stocks coming out of college or high school or international. Right. And the defensive player of the year last year was Rudy Gobert, who was a second round pick. Then you look at Draymond Green, second round pick. Like, Amin, you have been in the draft war room uh, with the Phoenix Suns. Right. Do you think there's anything to the idea that we're over uh, paralysis by analysis, where we have too much information at our fingertips now? Or as one scout told me, it's just the players are so much younger now coming out of college that it's hard mm. to project because it's not 22-year-old Tim Duncan's coming out of college now. It's 18-year-old Marvin Bagley or um, Anthony Edwards. Yeah, but I think that's a little disingenuous because if you look at, like, if we're just going off a of number one overall picks, 96 Iverson was a second-year player. It was a sophomore, came out. Uh, 97 was Duncan. 98 was... Uh, Olo Candy, okay, right? That was that was trash. Forget it. Ninety nine was Steve Francis. Uh, no, ninety nine was uh, Elton Brand, who right. was a freshman. Two thousand was uh, Kenyon Martin was a was a senior. Two thousand and one was Kwame Brown, high school. Two thousand and two was uh, Yao Ming, international. Right? Two thousand and three was LeBron, high school. Two thousand and four Dwight Howard, high school. Two thousand and five Bogut was a third year player. 2006, Bargnani was 1819. 2007, Olden was right, well, on, a on, on average, bro. On average, the the NBA draft last year was the youngest ever, and it's been trending that way. Average age coming out of college. I think young players coming out is not a new phenomenon. I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, young players being at the top of the draft is not a new phenomenon. So I don't think the reason why is oh because they're so young. It's hard to evaluate. I think there's a couple of things. I think. Obviously, draft evaluation, we always talk about this, has a lot more to do with the stuff that you don't see on the screen. Like, we can all watch and know a guy is good or not good, right? But it's like Michael Beasley is a great example. Michael Beasley in 2008, Michael Beasley was either the number one or the number two prospect the whole year, ended up going second overall, right? Because Derrick Rose went first. And if all you did is like, all I do is watch games. I don't, I just sports stick to sports. I just watch the game. Yeah. You would be like, this dude is 6'9", he shoots threes, he dribbles, he's physically imposing, he's, he's, he's the real deal. So what was the giveaway that Michael Beasley wouldn't be a good pro? It had nothing to do with what you watched at Kansas State and everything to do with the background, the intel. And that so was guy, your job? That, I mean, part of everybody's it. Job? Everybody's it was everybody's job. job. Yeah. It, was, it was everybody's job. It was everybody's job. So the reality was 
I don't give a shit what the basketball looks like. There are all of these red flags that tell us it won't even get to that point. Because in order to be great at this level, there is a certain level of maturity, I guess you want to call it, that you have to possess. You don't have to be doing your taxes. Doesn't mean that level, but there's a, a bare minimum, a baseline minimum. Uh, I've told the story of uh, 2009 All-Star Weekend was in Phoenix. And we saw one of the guys from Miami in, in Phoenix. And we're like, hey, man, what you doing here? And he's like, I'm here with bees. Because bees was there for rookie sophomore game. And we're like, oh, wow. You know, you know we always like, there's certain organizations that have a mystique. Even when you're working in the league, there's a mystique around them. So we're like, oh, Miami, damn, look at how they, they do it. Send people over to the They send their guys, so he's still working with them in the yeah. off times and stuff. So, like, you know, like, whoa, man, this Pat Riley culture is off the chain. <laughs> and the guy says, nah, it's not that. Like, why are you here? Said, if I'm not with him, if he doesn't have a chaperone, he won't remember what hotel he's staying at. Forget about what room or what floor. He won't even know what hotel he's staying at. He is literally like a child. He was like a child, right? So you know, a it's, lot it's of the teams, same thing that you're describing with Hassan Whiteside. Like when people uh, are like, "What? How did this guy just turn out of nowhere? Like come from Lebanon and." And he's playing like this in the NBA. How did all these scouts miss this dude? And I'm like, I don't think there were scouts who missed him. Yep. They, it we, was we, they knew that he could not thrive in an NBA culture or an NBA uh, workplace because he just didn't have the off court stuff handled. And 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 again, like I'm not even a lot of people like to go to you give these young guys millions of dollars and see it has nothing. They for five dollars. The idea is that it, the life skills it takes. To be a grown-up, not even a great grown-up, just like a regular mediocre grown-up. He did not possess. A lot of NBA teams, when they want to um, haze their rookies, they'll make them wear, like, children's backpacks. This dude came with his own SpongeBob backpack. Not, <laughs> uh, not ironically, that's his favorite That's his favorite show. Like, favorite enough where I'm, ro I'm rocking with this, right? Another example of this. You, you brought up Whiteside, another one. Who, who, Kwame Brown. Kwame Brown, when he got drafted by Washington, there's a story where, like, for a couple of days, uh, like, he doesn't show up. And the Wizards are like, where is he? And, they, you know, and so they, they hit up his agent and say, yo, he hasn't been coming. This is offseason, obviously. And, like, yo, where's Kwame? So his agent calls Kwame and he's like, yo, where are you? They've been looking for you. haven't you going up? And, oh, the agent actually went by because the kid didn't answer the phone. Agent went by and said, what, what haven't you been going on? He's like, I don't have anything to wear. Wait, what? And he said, what happened to all the clothes we got you? And he walk, he shows them the closet, and they're all dirty. So why don't you take them to the cleaners? I don't know how. Oh, no. Like, at that point, you're talking about someone, like, forget about figuring out help the helper and 2 ing and shit. The doesn't even know how to go to the cleaners and just drop off clothes and hand them a wad of cash and then pick it up a couple of days later. He didn't possess the bare minimum life skills to, to operate and function as an adult. So to expect like, oh, it'll be fine, is it, just a little too much. And so there are a lot of these names when you look through the draft. Sometimes, it's, sometimes people just mess up. Like he's not that good of a player. What were you thinking? But a lot of times it's these intangibles. It's the stuff that you don't know from watching a lot of films. Mm -hmm. And – not to say that these teams were just watching a lot of film and that's it. 
you're doing your due diligence, but at some point, man, you only know what people tell you. If people don't tell you, then it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to find out. Uh, I, the, the example I always give is Royce White. Royce White was coming out in the draft, and he was a decent college player. He looked like a decent NBA prospect. Um, and the big thing was, oh, anxiety, and he can't fly. And everyone was kind of very focused right, on that. Right. And then there was this whole element of the media who was very pro-Royce White because, because he was open about talking about yeah, 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 yeah. And so I had a guy in Iowa State, and, and Fred Hoiberg and his staff, anyone who asked, he would tell them the same. They were all telling them the same thing. Oh, the kid's great. Yeah, like he's a little anxious about flying, but he usually takes a pill and he chills out and it hasn't been an issue. He hasn't missed a single game or anything as a result. He's great. He's so awesome. Bada, bada, bada. I had a guy who was on that staff. And the guy gave me the real deal. He said, Amin, the anxiety is real. He, he, he does have mental health issues. It's not as big a deal. Like they said, take a pill. Yeah. But on top of that, he's an asshole. And he knows that people know about his condition. And then he uses it as an excuse to be an asshole. So he says, we go to work him out. 40% of the time, it's a good workout. 40% of the time, it's a horse workout. 20% of the time, I have to kick him out of the gym because you're just, we're, we're wasting time here. And so, like, over time, and the, the, the Intel report gets a lot more detailed beyond that. I'm not trying to kill Royce White right here. That's not my intention. But it is to tell you that it is hard sometimes to get the facts about these guys because everyone around them is incentivized to say the right things. Fred Hoiberg isn't going to say he's a train wreck because a lottery pick coming out of Iowa State makes Fred Hoiberg look good and helps him with future recruiting. Same mm, thing with the staff. Short time-wise, yes. But if, if, if... It doesn't, doesn't matter. When they walk in, when those recruits walk in, he says, I got him top 10, I got him top 5. I got... That's North, all, Carolina, yeah, yeah. North Carolina has a shit ton of very average players. But they pumped their chest about how many of them were NBA players, though. Doesn't matter. Rayshon Terry counts, right? Like <laughs> Joe Forte no counts. Yeah. Joe Forte counts. <laughs> right? Did Chris like, Lang make it? No, he didn't. But so, so my point being, everyone incentivized around him, everyone around him is incentivized for him to have the best possible outcome in this. So, so unless you have a personal connection with someone there. Was like I'm not going to bullshit you, which I, I was lucky enough to have. You're not going to know sometimes. Sometimes it's very apparent. Like Michael Beasley couldn't hide that in any way, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're Miami, you're like, you're saying we are the mightiest culture there is. If anyone can fix him, it's us. Have I told you the Skittles uh, story I heard about Michael Beasley? One of the no. Timberwolves guys told me. No. So they're running practice. Uh, it was I think it was training camp. Michael Beasley's with the Minnesota Timberwolves, and I think this is the David Kahn era. Um, I think. Uh, Michael Beasley's on the Timberwolves. And there's that classic video of, of Michael Beasley on the bench rubbing some other dude's yeah. knee. It's Tolliver, Tolliver's knee. Yeah, Anthony Tolliver's Anthony Tolliver. Anthony Tolliver's sitting next to Michael Beasley on the bench. And Michael Beasley's like paying attention to the game and starts rubbing um, Anthony Tolliver's thigh. And Anthony Tolliver's like, dude, what are you doing? And Michael Beasley looks and realizes, oh, I thought I was rubbing my own thigh. Legit thought he was rubbing his own leg. That is 100% fact. Also, only Michael Beasley could, or not only, but like Michael Beasley is the type of person who doesn't understand in order to touch your own thigh, there are two sensation <laughs> points, your hand and your own thigh. 
then the, and then the, but that's not even the story I'm talking about. So right. that's just just to you know give you a little amuse bouche of of Michael Beasley here. The other one is they're in Minnesota. They're playing. Uh, they're they're doing practice and they're running sprints. And the coaches are hearing this sound, and it's like shh 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 shh. Sounds like jingling of keys almost. Right. And they're like, "What is this damn sound?" They like they they look in the the uh, skywalk. Um, they're like looking in the ceiling. They're trying to figure out maybe there's like a, a vent that's like rattling something. And then they stop running sprints, and the sound goes away. And they're like, "All right, something's going on here. Is anyone have like keys in their shorts?" And they're like looking at the coaches like all crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And, uh, and B- Michael Beasley like taps his thigh and realizes he look, looks up and like, oh no. And he looks down and he pulls out a handful of Skittles in his pockets. Yeah. Michael Beasley so was a- playing practice and forgot he had fistfuls of Skittles in his pockets rattling around and causing like the practice. Be- Everyone in practice be like, what is that damn noise? And it was Beasley and, and stuffing his you, pockets with Skittles. This is at the very minimum, third year player, either third year or fourth year. Michael Beasley is twenty two or twenty three years old, and this is what we're talking about, right? So you say, how can someone this talented not pan out? Is the guy who doesn't know what his own leg feels like, like that, that's how. When you're working with these NBA teams early in your career, did you quite understand how much the draft process was so little about actual basketball? Like, did you I become like a private investigator of some sort? Uh, no, I because we had actual guy. We had a, a guy who's ex DEA, who uh, or ex Secret Service, excuse me, who 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 did the really heavy digging. Like, if you want, if you want to really, is fun he on one, the media guide? Like, is he part of the staff or is he just like off book consultant? He was, yeah, it, like you know what he's like. He's like my guy from Miami, the fixer. <laughs> right, you, you know who I'm talking about, right? Yes. I don't even know if I should say his name, even though he's on Media Guide, right? The Fixer, yes. But like the the Fixer, right? The, the the every team should have one, right? And it's not just fixing things; it's also finding out things. But on top of that, like your scouts, your good scouts are going to do that too. When I scouted, I would I would go to practices. I would be in the building. I would talk to not only coaches, I talked to Trainers and strength conditioning coaches. You say, I mean, why? Why do you care? Because my experience is that trainers and strength conditioning coaches are the most straightforward, blunt people you will meet. And they're literally well, hands-on with these players. And they're, they're small be, talking. And they, beyond, beyond, beyond all that. Like, everyone I'm talking to obviously has some interaction, uh, uh, some level of regular interaction. But the idea is that these people, unlike most other people, are like, wait a second, let me weigh how this is. This, this is good for my job, but I'm like strength coaches and trainers are usually just very like, ah, this lazy son of a comes in drunk every day because they're just talking. That's how they talk. That's how my, like my guys are right in Phoenix. They were just very straightforward and blunt and it helps. It, it's great for their job because players need them to not coddle them. They need a straight shot right there. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's part of it. But then the other people I talked to, I talked to like the, um, the academic advisors, I talk, like I talk to people who are like not in their life from a. I talk to their professors because <laughs> these are people who, again like they're not vested in. Look, this dude goes number one overall. This dude doesn't get drafted. Doesn't change my life one bit. My job is not predicated on that at all. My success or failure all lies on something completely unrelated to this draft process. 
these people will, will tell you. They've told me. They've, I've, I've had academic advisors tell me, I don't think basketball is a priority for them. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, all they ever talk about is fashion. Wanted to be a model. Mm. Like, that's a red flag, man. I get it. And I, and I don't want to be like, oh, so the guy's going to have interests other than... Dude, if I, I'm investing a top five or a top ten pick on somebody, like, I want to know this shit matters to them. Like, it matters to me, right? You can say I like fashion, but, like, if the academic advisor says never talks about basketball. It's raising some eyebrows. Yeah. But then, I, but then, so one of my takeaways in the draft analysis was like, I feel like there's been a kind of a scarlet letter for older guys in the draft, the Draymond Greens, the mm-hmm. Brandon Clarks, the, um, it's kind of like the anti Tim Duncan thing, which is, I feel like if you're 21, 22, like Cam Johnson last year is a good example. Mm-hmm. If you're 22 or 23, 21 years old coming out of the draft, I feel like you're unfairly discounted because of the fact that you're not 18, 19 years old. Even you know if you, even if that 18, 19 year old is miles away from that prospect who's 21, 22, Brandon Clark was my example at Matisse Thibault last year is another one. These older guys, there's almost this, this scarlet letter that they carry a stigma because Dude, we can't take a senior in college in their first that's, round pick. That's not that's not why. Here's why. And there's there's a really good reason why. And it's they are the older you are, the closer you probably are to being a finished product. Right? And a lot of the draft upside, 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 upside. It's about yes, it's not about the player I'm getting today. It's that five years from now, this dude's gonna be insane. Right? If we went by the player today, Devin Booker wouldn't be a lottery pick. If you waited until 22, 23, you don't have a chance to get Devin Booker. It's a wrap. It's too late by then. Because of all these guys you want to name, and you could go all the way back, Taj Gibson, and uh, you know, the vast majority of these players that turn out to be really good NBA players are just that, just good NBA players. Right. Brandon, Brandon Clark might not ever be an all-star, but we know yeah. that he's a, a really good NBA player. He'll already. be a 15, yeah. 18 year NBA player and it's going to help teams win and all that. Shit. Josh Hart, same thing. Mikael Bridges, same thing, right? No one's saying they're not good. Oh, he's 22. He's not good. They're good. They're going to help you. Todd, look at the people, way people think about Todd Gibson, right? Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, yeah. Fred Van Vliet, Like These guys are good NBA players that help teams win and make a lot of money doing so. But when we're talking about the draft, a lot of times, particularly in your top half of the draft, I'm not looking for a service. I'm not looking for Shane Battier. I'm not looking for Shane Battier. You're looking for a Giannis, a guy that hits like, exactly. four years down the line. So Shane Battier got traded for Rudy Gay, yep. right? And Rudy Gay, at that point, upside was through the roof. Now, there's the other parts where it's like, okay, how much of this potential is he going to realize? But if you're a bad team, like uh, Memphis was at the time, you're like a, a, a solid, cool Shane Battier that ain't going to get the job done. Or wait, or where did he go? Or did he go to Houston first? No, it was Houston. It was the Hashim Thabit yeah. trade. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, you know, it, it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm not, I can't do anything. Like, you're good, but I'm terrible. And I needed something a little bit more than good. I need something. I need to swing for the fan. I need a home run. And these guys are singles basically but singles eventually end up driving in you know get you know 
becoming runs that get batted in and all that. And so that's not to say singles are bad. It's just saying that for these teams that are picking a lot of times, they need now when you, right. Yeah. Now, when you get to the second half of the draft, that's why you see a lot of these guys start going. Because the same thing can be said of a lot of these international players. You ever think it's weird? You know, find it weird that a lot of the international players who are really good NBA players are all second-round picks? Nikola Jokic. Jokic. Uh, Rudy Gobert, Gasol, Gobert was a late first. Tony Parker was a late first. Uh, Goran Dragic was a second. Um, uh, you, you name uh, Ginobili. Uh, what's my man from uh, Barbosa is a late first, right? Same, it's the same thing at work. It's the idea that like I'm going to I I don't for whatever reason I feel like it's too risky to take this guy this high. But at this stage, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And that's why, by the way, for, to be clear, that's why a lot of times we talk to, you know, I talk to some players and sometimes I tell them like, yo, I know you want to be with an agent who's going to promise you you're going to get drafted 14th or whatever. But you're way better off if you end up in this situation. Eric Pascal is a million times better off landing in Golden State than he would have been had he been the Knicks pick. And he's from New York. But Eric Pascal with Golden State is not only going to become a better player by virtue of being around all these great players. But he's going to be in a situation where the role he's asked to fulfill, he is capable of meeting and exceeding the expectations. R.J. Barrett? I don't know about that. (laughs) And that's not a knock on R.J. Barrett as a player. It's just the role he's being asked to fulfill. I don't know if he can meet, let alone exceed those expectations. Montrez Harrell, Chandler Parsons, Jay Crowder, Chris Middleton, Draymond Green, Isaiah Thomas, Hassan Whiteside, Nikola Jokic, uh, Jeremy Grant, Boyan Bogdanovich, Will Barton, Spencer Dinwiddie, Josh Richardson, Kyle Quinn, Rashawn Holmes, Malcolm Brogdon, Lance Stevenson, Nemanja Bjelica, Mike Scott, Joe Harris, all second round picks. Yeah. And for the vast majority of them, I believe there's a couple of exceptions there, but the vast majority of them are just solid service NBA players. Usually the international guys are the ones that blow up a little bit more. And I think a lot of that is due to just kind of not knowing what we have. And, and again, the Denver Nuggets will tell you, we didn't know Jokic was going to be this good. They thought Nurkic was their big of the future. Bertans was a second-round pick, too. Yeah. Surface one NBA player. Uh, so any thoughts about the draft lottery this year or the draft class? Have you done any homework on the draft class this year? Or any, yeah. any like, Wiseman? I haven't done any homework on this stuff. I, but I, the I, idea I, of, like, Wiseman is the number one pick, a seven-foot-one 19 year old i just get super queasy about that in today's nba look it can it can succeed like it can pan out but i just get nervous about that with the way the nba is changing maybe there's going to be a pendulum uh, shift i haven't watched the tape on this kid and this is probably this is an indictment on me rather than than wiseman but he better be a seven foot one guard right with the way the or skilled skilled i think i think that's that's the takeaway the takeaway isn't he's got to be Michael Porter Jr., right, like, or Durant, just be like a straight-up perimeter guy. The takeaway is if you're going to be 7-1, if you're going to be anything in this game, in this league now, you have to be a skilled player. You have to be able to dribble, pass, and shoot, and more importantly, you have to be able to recognize when to dribble, when to pass, when to shoot, right? Um, if Bam Adebayo were 6-11, would we like him any less? It's not, it's not his, his, it's six, nine is not what makes us right. happy about him. It's that he's six, nine mobile enough to switch on to Malcolm Brogdon and guard Brogdon while also at the same time can dribble 
and pass and is actually an excellent passer. But also block shots and rebound. Like Bam Adebayo does a lot of the things you ask of a traditional big. But he gives you a healthy helping of skill and IQ on top of that. Oh, yeah. Right? Same thing with Draymond. Right? Draymond does a lot of things. At 6'6", no one – if Draymond were 6'9", we'd be over the moon about him. <laughs> right? Yeah. But the idea is that at 6'6", he's able to replicate many of the things a big man does, but also dribbles and passes. Right? And someday shoots. Someday it's not. Think about the bigs, the true bigs in our league right now. Embiid, Jokic, uh, Gobert, who else? Whiteside. Name Anthony like the real-ass real centers. I'm going to name the real-ass centers. All right. Well, first of all, Anthony Davis, the fact that he's playing the four no, is no, also— No, no, I'm not—I'm just saying like, like, like guys who would have been centers in 1998, right? Like Anthony— right. Davis is like uh, 200 pounds. Like I'm about like the bit, the the kind of bigs that you say are obsolete because no one would say Anthony Davis is an obsolete big. Stephen Adams, but Stephen Adams, right? Like those types of dudes, Nurkic, right? Those types of dudes. What separates them from Jalil Okafor is that they're bringing something to the table other than give me the ball in the block, turn around and score on you. For some of them, it's passing. Nurkic is an excellent passer. Jokic is an excellent passer, right? Um, uh, Embiid when he wants to be is an excellent passer, right? For others, it's my, despite my size, I'm quick. Gobert can go out there and switch on somebody. Uh, Steven Adams can go out there and switch on somebody, right? But if you're talking about, yeah, you know, what do you do? Yeah, give it to me on the block and I'll score and I'll grab a lot of rebounds for you. And if someone comes to the rim, I'll block shots. All right, how do you feel? You know, switching out. Ooh, I'm not getting out there. That's somebody Small's job. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, uh, offensively, uh, we want you to kind of be actually pulled out to the three-point line to give the other guys. Oh, but I can't shoot. I need to be around. The like, if that's who you are as a big, then that's obsolete. Yes. Now, this is the part where you and I are no good because we haven't watched enough Wiseman. But <laughs> does he bring skill? And most importantly, I think more importantly, perhaps in skill, does he bring IQ? Because I'll take a guy with no skill but some IQ. Because the idea is that. All you guys just put him in the gym. He'll work on it. He'll get better at the skill stuff. But a guy with no IQ with skill, it's a crapshoot. He might, the light bulb might come on or it might never come on. And you got a guy who's just doing all types of fancy stuff that's not really what's, what's called for at the moment. As you're talking right now, I'm looking at the Miami. I'm checking in on the Heat game, Heat Pacers. Bam Adebayo has, this is early in the fourth quarter, three points, two rebounds, but he has the best plus minus in the game. And I'm curious think, to see. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that he shouldn't rebound. I'm not saying he shouldn't be taking shots. But Bam Adebayo's game is all about the in-between stuff. Right. And he's very Dray Draymond Green-like. Oh, yeah. Right? In, in a way that people don't respect and don't properly appreciate what Draymond Green does, Bam Adebayo is the same way, except he's bigger and he's in better shape. Right? <laughs> he's, like, he's like Draymond if, like, Draymond got his life together and also got a couple inches yep. on top of it. And that, that's saying a lot because Draymond's really, really good, right? Like, this out-of-shape Draymond is better than a lot of power forwards in this league. The uh, DHO with Duncan Robinson. By the way, Duncan Robinson has 24 points and seven three-pointers. The DHO with Duncan Robinson has, like, a 133 offensive rating. Him and, him and, him and Bam. It's basically Redick and Embiid from a couple years ago. Yep. And yep. it is so effective. Like, any big can hand off the ball, right? But 
to use the space and use the IQ of just altering your body, your angle, and just sticking your ass out, right, at the right amount of time to just free open Duncan for just a half a second. Like, that's the nuances of being a big man in today's NBA. And not only that, but also it's the, not going to dribble, I'm not going to hand it off to you, I'm going to keep my dribble. Or I'm going to hit this other guy. Or you're going to fake and then cut back door and I'm going to hit you. It's the IQ of both of them that they understand the it's a play action, not a play call. Play call means we got to script it out. Play action means we've got all these different options we can do out of this. And that's what makes it hard. What makes what made the Warriors so hard to guard like that those first couple of years was the split cut action, which is you throw the ball to Bogut at the elbow and then Steph and Clay screen for one another. And so as, as a defender, I'm like, wait a second. Okay, they're both two of the greatest shooters of all time. Do I help? If I don't help, one of these guys is coming off clean. If I do help, the other guy's completely clean. And, and so now the big who's guarding Bogus is like, well, do I jump this? Do I do this? Do I do that? And then even when they screen, they might flare along the three-point line. One guy might cut. One guy might flare. One might cut. One might do this. One might do that. And when you've, even when you've like done the – I've stuck all my fingers and toes into the holes in the dam. Then what happens is Bogut turns around and takes one dribble of dunks because you left him wide open, <laughs> the guy with the ball, which is, of course, like yeah. counterintuitive to everything you think about basketball, but that's life. So when you talk about that DHO action between Bam and, and uh, uh, Duncan Robinson, it's not just that Duncan Robinson is a great passer. It's not just that Bam – oh, that Bam's that a great Bam, passer and yeah. Duncan Robinson's a, a great shooter. It's the idea that they both understand – we don't know what's going to happen when we start this action, but we know what could happen. And depending on how they're guarding this, we're going to have a universe of options. And even if they get all of those taken care of, guess what? <laughs> you got some other shit for them. Like, cause now Tyler hero is flared and he's wide open and he's got 11 right now. Um, so the, that reminds me of a story, um, a classic story that Jeff Van Gundy and Daryl Morey used to tell is uh, Jeff Van Gundy asked Daryl Morey when he was with the Rockets and it was T-Mac and, and, uh, and Yao. I think it was, it was them at that time. And Jeff Van Gundy was like, all right, I want to know what our most efficient play call is. So Jeff Van Gundy asked Daryl Morey and the staff, the quants, to basically run the numbers on which play calls generated the highest points per play. And Daryl comes back and says, Jeff, you're not going to like this. Jeff goes, why? What's up? He goes... Um, do you want to know what the best play is that we run? And Jeff, and Jeff like rattles off like three different plays. And he says, no, the best play that we run is no play call. Broken play. No play call. Broken play. Yeah. And Jeff was like, what do you mean? He's like, just the improvisation, like the improv play, broken play. Like that actually gave us the, the best chances of scoring on a possession. And like that, the, the lesson that Jeff got was, you know, if you have the right IQ, players like just having calling play actions or uh just having them improvise in a situation is actually going to be more effective because the defense probably has scouted every single play yeah, yeah. and so they don't so have we, the blueprint anymore i've told you i've told you this story where we had a scout was uh talking to us and saying like yo man i've been trying to figure out you guys play call i know when mike touches his elbow that means elbow but sometimes he like scratches his ear. Sometimes he, he like he rubs his mustache. Sometimes and, like it, it's it, there's no rhyme or reason. How yeah. do you guys figure out all these different play calls? And we laugh like, yo, 
Mike just called elbow. Steve did everything else. <laughs> like, so he's reading have... into just basically random yeah. shit. Yeah. The idea that w- w- our offensive genius was to draw up all these billions of plays and have a playbook the size of Encyclopedia Britannica, all volumes. And the reality is, no, we have one of the smartest basketball players in the history of the game. So you put him in a certain situation that lopsides the defense or you know gives the floor a certain kind of balance that's in our favor, and then you let them figure it out. But you can't do that with everybody. No. That's the other thing. Like, some can't people, do it with the Michael Beasleys. Some people can't be given that kind of responsibility. It's not just a Michael Beasley. Yes, the Michael Beasley you can't do that with. And then there are some really great players who are smart players, but like, to hell with that. You say If you say, use your judgment, their judgment is, okay, I'm going to get the shot up by any means necessary. All right, we got to wrap here. Heater up 103.91. Not really saying that they're going to win the title, but in the bubble uh, where home court advantage is out, I know there's been some analysis that there's like two points or maybe one point of advantage uh, empirically in the bubble so far. But man, throw it all out in the playoffs. I, I do not think that the virtual board, the virtual fans is giving players, and I don't even know if they pay attention to it. Nobody cares. No, I've talked to some people. Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. So everyone, You know what everyone says? Watching on TV, it feels like the playoffs. Being in there, it's like, or it feels normal, excuse me, I should say. Watching on TV, it feels normal. Being there, it is a, a weird experience. That So, like, none of this stuff. All this stuff is for us to feel good when we watch TV. It's kind of, it's, this, is gonna, this might be controversial. It's kind of like going to TSA at the airport. It's not actually a safety measure, right? Not when we don't x-ray, like, you know, we don't check cargo and stuff like that on the same planes that we fly on. But we do it so that everybody feels good. Like, okay, yeah, they're doing everything. You might want to delete that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's a psychic benefit. It's, it's a peace of mind. Yeah, it's like the people at home are like feeling like, oh, this is the real deal. But the players there, it, it's definitely – hey, to circle back to uh, my guy Joe Varden's uh, column, it's LeBron James might be, uh, might be affected by the, by the video board in ways that we don't know about. So yeah. anyway, we got to roll. Uh, Amin, where can people find you um, these days? You're, are, you still, are you still teaching classes at ASU? <laughs> Wait, what? You just Did look I like ever? a professor. Oh, oh, because I no, because you know I was a T, I was a GA at one point when I was getting my graduate degree. I was like, wait, did Tom did research or something? Like, <laughs> well, no, that was that was total coincidence. Uh, no, I so uh, all right, so I guess you can catch me on the jump periodically. Don't ask me when; it just happens. Uh, I'm on Hoop Streams, which is our digital streaming show at ESPN once a week. You can catch me on SiriusXM NBA Radio every Sunday with Jason Jackson. 10 to 1 Eastern, and then, again, multiple times during the week. Don't ask me when because it's kind of periodic. But if I'm really going to push, I'm going to push uh, two vehicles that I do on the podcast side. One of them is Black Opinions Matter, B-O-M-M. We talk about a lot of pop culture and cultural things that are happening, entertainment through the black lens. In particular, we had a, a great episode with Irv Roland, who's a longtime NBA yeah. assistant coach, went down to Louisville to protest uh, the murder of Breonna Taylor outside of the attorney general's house got arrested him and Kenny Stills, the NFL wide receiver. So they were both on our podcast. They talked about that experience, how they were arrested were not Mirandized. They didn't get their rights read. Uh, they were not even told what they were charged with. They were held uh, captive in a room for hours, shackled to one another before they even were taken to a holding cell. Uh, it's a very harrowing experience and they did a great job of opening up to us. B-O-M-M is the podcast. Check it out. And the other podcast is me and Zach Harper of The Athletic. Uh, 
We have a podcast called Cinephobe where we review movies that are poorly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and we try to ascertain whether they're actually that bad or or uh, do they get a, a fair shake. And a lot of times, trust me, they're that bad. And I would <laughs> kill Zach Harper, but you should listen to the podcast because it's funny and entertaining. Cinephobe. All right. So uh, Bomb, B-O-M-M, um, Cinephobe, and then like five other if you want his NBA analysis, not just here on the Haber Show every few weeks. Um, go check out at Darth Amin on Twitter as well. So um, thanks so much for coming around, man. And uh, we'll talk soon when we get a little bit more action out of the bubble. Um, and maybe the Bucks and Lakers will be out even in the first round. No, Bucks won't be. Maybe the Lakers. All right. I want to thank Amin for joining us this week. Um, really good stuff. Again, at Darth Amin on Twitter. Count the Dings, ESPN, Sirius XM Radio. Does a really good job with Cinephobe and Bomb. He's always great. Now, last week we had Pablo Torre on the pod and we went deep on the Sixers and pretty much everything we said on that pod was still uh, very much at play now that the Sixers are down 2-0. Also find out what it's like to be a virtual fan with Stu Gatz uh, and Dan Lebitard's father, Poppy. Really fun stuff with him. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, until next week on the pod.